Ooh, Carmen, what you reading? I be hearing you on that little podcast and stuff, girl. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to What You Reading, the podcast series. I'm Carmen Wong, host of this podcast and curator of What You Read in the series. I'm here with a very special episode featuring some fiction writers, one of which has actually completed his MFA and another one who is pursuing her MFA right now. They're here to share some original content. I was also able to virtually sit down with a dear friend of mine, award-winning book writer, who allowed me to interview him and he's here to share a few words. I did not know at the time of this interview that his book would be listed as a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Book Awards. I'm so excited for us to get into it. Please make sure you check us out on Instagram at what you read in this series. Please remember, everything here is homemade. I was able to tune into everyone virtually. We are quarantined and they're so excited to share their words. I thank them so much. Let's get into it. I am here with Maurice Carlos Ruffins, most recognizably the author of We Cast a Shadow, which was published back last year in January 2019 by Penguin Random House. Shout out to that. That's a huge freaking deal. I'm so happy and so honored to be with you here today, Maurice. He is yeah, yeah. a revolutionary storyteller whose work exposes what many Black writers before us has rightfully called the race problem in America. He's a genuine human, so down to earth, hence being here today, and I can't get enough of that, who has received quite some fame within the last year and someone I'm so proud to even be friends with, let alone be in the same circle with. So thank you, um, Maurice. For those who do not know, um, he was featured last year in New York Times list of Black male writers of our time. I was so happy to see you on there, Maurice. Um, because you were there and you appeared as your full self. I know I kept saying this when we initially first met, but I respected you so much um, when I recognized that you were wearing the I wear my own clothes um, t-shirt, um, <laughs> which was really a nod against, for me, the commodifications of writers um, or selling out in this industry. And really it was a privilege to see someone walk in their purpose um, with integrity at such a pivotal um, point in their career, um, of a point of, of popularity in their career. And so um, I wanna tell everyone a little bit about how we met, which was actually back in 2018 through Kelly Harris uh, DeBerry back at the Words and Music Festival, which occurs annually um, in partnership with the uh, uh, One Book One New Orleans um, here in New Orleans. And I remember um, just sitting and listening to you talk. And then Kelly told me that you actually graduated from UNO, where I attend now, um, where you got your master's of fine arts. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to talk to him. Um, so I'm so, <laughs> so, so happy to have you on here. Well, you know, I, I feel fortunate to be a part of this community. And I think that. You know, when you say that you're looking at what I'm doing and being impressed, I'm trying to be like you. I'm trying to be like all the writers in our community. You know, people are doing some really wonderful things right now. And so I just get I get energy from that. And, you know, being authentic is really just about making sure the work speaks, speaks before everything else. You know, the writing is the most important thing to me and how I can give back to the people that have given me so much. 
Yeah, no doubt. You know, I I have a few questions that I want to get into today. But before I do, um, I think that it's it's extremely significant what you just said. And and one of the reasons why I had to describe you as such a genuine person um, is really because you are organic in that way in my experience with you. Um, rightfully as a friend, and, and I use that word, um, I use that word uh, very significantly because I think over my time here in the last two years that I've, I've been here, um, I felt like I was able to reach out to you, to talk to you, to ask some of those very difficult questions. And so before we get into questions, I have to bring up, uh, when we were at Ashe Cultural Center, we've been there uh, plenty of times. So I think that it is the time where they were doing a tribute to Toni Morrison. And uh-huh. I remember you were one of the featured readers there. And you uh, were reading from this uh, essay, essay, uh, the ones who don't say they love you. Uh huh. And I came up to you afterwards and I said, where can I find that? I must read it. And I don't know if you remember, but you took it out of your hands. It was a printed copy and you handed <laughs> me your copy. Do you remember this? Of course I remember that because... <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked that anybody wanted to actually read it. I was like, oh, okay, all right. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. That that shocked me to hear because I was I was so moved. I still hold on to that moment. I'm not sure if you know, but that meant a lot to me. I think um one of the things that I consider being a writer or or someone trying to get themselves out there publicly is how to remain so accessible to the people around us and to the communities that we're in. And I think that you do that very gracefully. Well, you know, I get it from my parents. You know, both of my parents instilled me with this idea that all of us souls are one and it, it, there's never a reason to look down on anybody. You have a much better experience when you just see that person that you're encountering as your equal, regardless of what you're doing or who you supposedly are. It's just, you know, we all the same. We all the same in this life. And I really embrace that in my everyday uh, interactions with people. Yes, I can definitely see that. You know, it's it's crazy to hear you so humble and, and I'm so happy that you are here and being your full self because people get to hear that this is actually Maurice on a daily and I say that because um, like I mentioned you were featured in the New York Times but also your book was featured in the New York Times as well so I wanted to start off with asking some questions um, relatively about your book and the conception of it and um, what really the first point I had to make was so I am uh, finishing my semester um, in about a few weeks or so, and I'm working on my term paper. And it's for a class called Literature of the African Diaspora. And one of the, the, the topics of my, my term paper that I've decided on is really writing about um, or trying to piece together the answers to what is in a name. And as I read the first line in, in your book, which was, my name doesn't matter, right? This is coming from We Cast a Shadow. And I was thinking about the history of naming and the signification of names in literature across the African diaspora, the way, you know, names can single-handedly work as tools to reveal or dismantle assumptions and preconceived narratives um, and, and really help to um, round that character out in in the eyes of the audience and those reading and, and and really understand the world in which they are living in and so I was thinking of the ways that names can easily be formed um as a type of ownership 
And I was wondering, did any of that really cross your mind when writing, um, especially as you explore this relationship between, you know, a Black father and a Black son, uh, the corporate world and these communities that they find themselves functioning in? Yeah, you know, I think that naming is is always very important. You already named the genius Toni Morrison. And to me, she's the great master of names. There's something that she does where in her naming conventions, she's showing you the power of African descended people and black women in particular throughout her work. And in some ways I was paying homage to that, but I was also sort of playing the opposite side of it. You know, I I think that a lot of her greatest characters are really moving in power and they feel like they're very empowered to move towards their goals. Mm. And whereas in my book, you know, most of the characters have names, the narrator does not have a name. And I think part of the reason for that is because he feels a certain sense of, you know, maybe shame is the word, but maybe it's just this idea of, you know, his situation is so jacked up. He doesn't want to claim it necessarily. He just wants you to just to understand what's going on. Like, let the facts be the facts and let it be less about him as a person. Wow, that's wonderful. I really, I it never gets old hearing your process of writing, actually. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize how much I had that at my disposal, and I'm so appreciative of that. Um, I've heard you share the story of how it was that you came about um, having this unnamed character, um, Clark Kent, if you will. But um, I would like for you to to kind of tell everyone who may not have heard that story before, um, fans of yours who are listening, um, how exactly that character came about? How was it conceived? You know, how many versions of this did you have to write to get to that? Yeah, I mean, when you say versions, that's exactly right. I feel like I probably met this character a good 13 years ago, way back in 2007. Mm-hmm. And this is before I was even um, in the MFA program myself. So I was this amateur writer. And the one thing that, that I knew that I had was I was good at sort of capturing a person's voice on the page. His voice was really intriguing to me. And, you know, I, he's unnamed in the book, but at that time his name was Clark. And I said, you know, this guy, this is a very interesting character. If you can figure out what to do with this dude, it's really going to work. Now, little did I know it took five more years before I started the first draft of what became this book. And um, in, in the interim, I had written 70 pages of an earlier version of a possible book starring this character. I didn't, I didn't like what I was doing. And eventually, it was really a matter of thinking about, well, what does this man really care about? And what, what are the things in his life? that are keeping him from getting to where he wants to go. And what it really came down to is that, you know, he was experiencing all of the problems of white supremacy that are affecting so many black people in America. And I think I recognize that on the one hand, you had the racism, which is sort of keeping him down. And on the other hand, he's being brought up by, by the love of his son, of his family, of his community. And so once I figured out that conflict, he really came alive. He began to speak to me in a very clear and direct way from that moment. And, you know, I always say that for me, when, I, when a story is working well or the book is working well, the characters just tell me what's going on. It's like, you know, what happened next? Well, this happened next. Well, you know, what you want to happen? Well, this is what I did. Well, how did it go wrong? Well, this is how I went wrong. And so from that point forward, he was just leading, he was leading me along um, every step of the way from that point forward. Wow, uh, well, you know, hearing you speak, do you feel like in essence, that voice in your head maybe became a little bit easier to access or to negotiate with in the writing process 
because some of it um, felt personal to you or your experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, definitely some of his biography is some of my biography. I mean, he is a lawyer like I'm a lawyer. And he's from a, you know, a, a sort of swinging southern city, just like I am. He, you know, he loves people. He loves culture. Um, he sees what people are doing that is sometimes rooted in white supremacy, and he doesn't like it very much. He's trying to figure out how to deal with those things. And I think also part of his personality is the fact that, you know, I, I remember it was on um, September Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar. And it's that last song, Mortal Man, where Kendrick is interviewing Tupac. And Tupac in that old interview was talking about how he doesn't know where the songs come from, where the raps come from. Sometimes he feel like he's just channeling, channeling like the vibes in the, the stories of his dead homies. And I think that then you know, the struggle of a character like my character is, is related to the struggle of all the black men and women who have tried to make a way for themselves in America and have been you know, pushed back by racism. And so I'm just joining hands with them to write this story. And it's not even really my story. It's our story. And, you know, the sort of artsy part of it is like making it more dramatic, making it you know, bigger, making it more colorful. And in that sense, it's not really like a hard job. It's just me tapping into what I know is already there. Yeah. Wow, that is so profound. That actually, it leads me to my next question. Um, because originally I wanted to classify this um, as somewhere between, well, somewhere in the world of, of, of sci- uh, sci-fi, of, of Black sci-fi, as we know, um, and moving or leaning towards Afrofuturism, right? Because we have this whole um, idea of what it means to be African diasporic people um, living in this country or dispersed elsewhere. And I don't know if for you, you would necessarily characterize your novel um, in any of these genres, but I was wondering more about what was your intent yeah, you know, I think that um, the way that the artist or the writer sees something is different from how the world sees it. I was just listening to, I think it was, um, oh, I think it was Snoop Dogg or somebody talking about like his early rap career. And he said he was surprised when people called him a gangster rapper because he was just telling stories from his life. He didn't see himself as like pushing an agenda. Uh, me and my book has been called uh, Sci-Fi, Dystopian, Afrofuturism, literary, like every single possible title. And to me, it's hilarious because, you know, can one book be everything? Well, maybe it can be. Um, I know that stylistically, I've always been the kind of person who likes to have a sort of like a grab bag of feelings and styles and genres that are all contained within my stories. So, you know, whether it's a satire, whether it's dystopian, I think that really is up to the, the, the eye of the beholder. You know, I've had some readers say that it's so far out you know, none of this could possibly ever happen. I've had some people say this reads like it happened yesterday. And it gives me joy because I want to have something that is a bit complex. You know, to me, part of the art of it is that it, it, it's like a mirror. You know, you look in it and you sort of see a bit of yourself. In it. Wow. I'm still stuck on can one book be everything? Wow. <laughs> that's actually, you know, that's really good to consider. You know, I think that rightfully, um, that can also be said for many uh, Black writers, uh, writers of color before us who have set their, um, their memories, have set their experiences to the page and allowed it to coincide with 
what was going on in their contemporary societies, which I find that this book does and does so well, radically, in fact, and that perhaps is why um, folks are just ready to put it everywhere. Um, so thank you so much for that answer. I know earlier you mentioned, um, uh, or you talked a little bit about Toni Morrison and, and the ways that you look up to her as a writer and, and how we talked about this being a story for us, our stories. And I was just wondering, um, would you place your book or, or your status even as a, a Black male writer, um, a leading writer, according to the Times, right? Would you say that this book um, or you as a writer is in line with anyone specifically or in tradition with anyone specifically before you and who or what books would that be? Well, you know, so, you know, again, Toni Morrison is kind of on that mountain behind everything. And I think that, for example, I could not have written this book without Sula, you know, because Sula, along with The Bluest Eye, you know, both of those books are about Blackness and both of those books are about how, the, how those protagonists react to a society that sees Blackness as less than. And what I loved about Sula is that, you know, she also has this, this component in Sula of this woman who is often maligned fragging quote unquote like a man. And the idea is that, well, you know, just like books can contain multitudes, people contain multitudes. And so it's a very complex idea. The book's only 200 pages long that, you know, that Sula is. And I just admired that complexity in, in a small space. You know, for my book, I also looked at Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which is, you know, again, it's really just about trying to live the quote unquote American dream as, a, as an African descended person in this country and how, you know, even the quote unquote best of us are experiencing all these things that people who are not black just do not experience. It's not part of their of their lived experience. So you, you have that. Um, and even books that are a bit, you know, different and not necessarily about race directly, like a Moby Dick, which is something I read when I was at UNO, because I didn't I didn't read it in high school or in um, undergrad. And like just the way that, that book is a shape changer, you know, from chapter to chapter to chapter, he's using different styles. One chapter is like a stage play. One chapter is like a journal. One chapter is like a straight up story. One chapter feels like it's a Michael Bay, you know, bad boys film. And for him to have written something like that, you know, 170 years ago, maybe think, well, you know, Maurice, you don't have to like conform to anybody's idea of what a story is. Just go after it and just be honest and natural and have fun with it. You know, I really appreciate that answer. Sula is actually one of my favorite um, Toni Morrison fiction pieces. Um, I do love a lot of her essays, in fact. But I was drawn to Sula uh, really because of the ways in which we find that Morrison uh, discusses feminism um, or the ways in which Sula can be read through that literary perspective. And so it it really, um, I think it comforts me to even hear you talk about Sula in that way and that that is something that you picked up on and was able to stylistically figure out what works in that and apply it even to your own writing. That to me is very skillful. Um, I think you've given so much great advice. Um, actually, you mentioned uh, being at UNO and I, I wanted to transition a little bit about what it was, um, you know, like navigating this MFA space, which I now occupy, um, and what advice you would give to any writers, especially writers of colors, um, navigating this academic and artistic space. Yeah, you know, I think that being in a program is just like being in the real world. And, 
you know, the view that we have as African descended people is both something that's going to cause some consternation because people don't quite understand what we're doing. And at the same time, it's also a source of strength. And, you know, I know that when I started in the program, you know, I was, you know, probably five or 10 years older than the average student. I was one of maybe only four or five black people in the program at that time. And so I felt like a bit of an outsider. But honestly, I'm used to feeling like an outsider. And being an outsider usually means that you have a community that, that is back home that you, that you can sort of draw energy from. And so what I just kept thinking about was, you know, the stories I want to tell are not going to be like anybody else's stories. And that is a good thing because my stories are going to stand out. My stories are going to pop and they're going to have a certain sort of energy that nobody else's stories have to them. And, you know, at first I even tried to sort of tamp down and sort of like mimic my classmates stories. And, you know, they had a few writers in class who like to this day, I still think are like even better writers than I am. But I recognize that trying to sort of fit their styles into my styles wasn't the best choice for me as a writer. And so the further I got along, the more I said, Maurice, just embrace where you come from. You know, again, embrace that Toni Morrison, embrace that Ralph Ellison, embrace that, you know, all these various writers who I read throughout my life, you know, Baldwin, um, you know, uh, Alice Walker, um, you know, the more I did that, the more I felt empowered and the more my stories began to have success as I would send things out. The earlier stories didn't get published. The latest stories got published. And I just think that having that exposure to an atmosphere that was not like not my home atmosphere gave me a sort of two sided view where I could see where I'm from and what I've done. I can see what their lives are like. And so that's why in my in my stories and in my books, I can write you know, like a white character is like the fifth most important character and have that character sound like a real person and not sort of car you know, caricature them mm -hmm. and have them interact with like, my three black leads and make it feel totally organic throughout the entire work. So I, I just sort of see every experience as a valuable experience and as an experience where you can sort of add in and have more power rather than less power. Wow. Yo, if there's any writers listening to this, I would write that down. I was, like, trying to write that down as you were talking, Maurice. And I'm always, I think, <laughs> plagued with that question. Um, and I'm so thankful, I think, if nothing else, right, that you have become um, part of my community here. You talk so much about needing that community when you're in this space and how to, to, to find your own voice, um, to find your honest uh, and integral... Um, voice within this space that isn't lashing on to other narratives, right? And being confident. And I think that for me, I'm I'm able to do that because um, I can see someone like you doing it um, and, and other people that we have around us doing it and doing it so well um, and unapologetically. So I'm so thankful for that. Um, I wanted to ask... Um, in hindsight, what has it been like successfully completing your MFA um, and now moving, uh, you know, into this more professional writer and novelist world um, and and still engaging with, um, you know, your your practices in law um, and, and now teaching in the in the classrooms of creative writing? It's been one of the most wonderful things in my life. You know, I, I've been lucky to have good experiences where I can see that it's something I want to be involved in, something I want to do. And with this, it was like, you know, it was like being in a little boat, you know, floating around when I was in the MFA program and kind of like seeing 
this island and thinking, I got to get to that island. If I get to that island, it's going to be great. I'm going to love this so much. And so you know, with my little oars, I roll to the shore and I finally get to it. And I look around and it's even more beautiful than I thought it was. You know, there's like pine trees and there's like this beautiful sandy beach. And it's a little, a little, um, you know, you cottage. <laughs> well, I mean, that's how I feel about it. I feel like I imagine the life I'm living right now when I was still in school. And I've been blessed in that it's actually happened. You know, I thought, Maurice, you know, one day you want to publish a book. You know, one day you want to go on a book tour. You know, one day you want to be interviewed with other writers you respect, people that you read their, their books years ago and be a part of that same, you know, clique, so to speak. And I, I look at people and I see how they, how they live their lives. And, you know, one example that I, I noted was the writer uh, Kurt Vonnegut, who wrote Slaughterhouse-Five and Breakfast, Breakfast of Champions. And I remember that whenever I would like see interviews with him, he just seemed so happy to be a writer. He's like, you know, I write books for a living. This is so great. And that's my attitude. And so, you know, now my book's been out for a year. The paperback came out um, about three months ago now. Uh, yes. my, ne my next book comes out next year. I'm working on my third book. You know, I still have things that are planned that I'm working on. And so it just feels like it's really nice when you really want something to happen and it actually happens because often in life, it's not the case. And, this time it really is the case. And it's just, it's magic. It's just wonderful. And I know that you deserve it. You definitely deserve it. And I, I always say that to you, but I really do mean that in the most encouraging way. Um, I'm happy to even see everything unfold from when I first met you even to now. Um, and, and the ways that you accept these things into your life, I think that sometimes we find it very hard to accept ourselves in these positions or think that these things can happen to us. So it's so refreshing hearing that from you and, and kind of watching you experience everything unfold. Um, I know that you are actually part of a writing group um, down here. And so I just wanted to ask you really quickly how that formed um, and what it's like to have a group of writers, you know, amongst the same caliber of you and, and sharing experiences back and forth and how different that is from writing in isolation. Yeah, well, I think that just like anybody else, writers need community. Writing itself is often a very solitary act. You know, if you spend a lot of time, you know, just sort of in your apartment by yourself, it can be it can be unhealthy. And I think that when you recognize that people doing the same thing that you're doing, they have the same love of the game as it were that you have. That's a good thing to engage with. Um, I've, I've been involved in different groups. I was involved in a group called the Melanated Writers of New Orleans that was all black and POC writers. Uh, we were together for like four years. And it was very energizing and they taught me so much about how to be what I wanted to be. Um, my other group is the Podunk Writers Alliance. We started way back in 2007 and um, they're like family. You know, I, I look, I've been in their houses and I've seen them have kids and we've gone on trips together. You know, we watched each other have these sort of ups and downs over the years. And, you know, the thing is, when you have that community around an activity that you care about so much, I think it just makes you all more powerful. And so, you know, back in the day when some of them started winning contests and getting things published and finding agents, I kept thinking, you know what, this is a wonderful thing, because if your crew is doing well, you're in the right crew. And that's really how it's turned out, because I think we've all sort of lifted each other up as, you know, as a group. Yes, I can definitely see that. I'm so happy to have met um, some people from Podunk. And I can definitely say that I see that sentiment really aligned amongst each of you. 
Um, I have to ask you, please, can you spell Podunk for us and say Podunk's website? Because I know you guys have um, a host of writing contests and other, you know, submissions um, that people can um, apply to. So I would definitely love for some of our listeners to check that out. You know, the funny thing is, I'm not even sure if I, if I can spell it. Let me, let me give it a shot. Let's see. Uh, all right. Podunk Writers Alliance is uh, P-E-A-U-X-D-U-N. Q U E and uh, website is just uh, uh, com. If you Google it, it pops right up. It's, it's just the first thing that'll pop up. And the name is spelled like that. It's, it's sort of as a result of this sort of New Orleans Cajun French influence and Creole influence where, you know, instead of like a P O, you have the E A U X, which stands for the O. Yes, I love it. I wanted to make sure I plug that in there because you guys do a lot of great things. We do. We stay busy. Yes, y'all do. Um, you know, just wrapping things up here, um, I have to ask, what is the best piece of writing advice that you have received, whether it's about the process um, or conception, creating, editing, things of that nature? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've gotten so much good advice. Um, I think the thing that I think about maybe the most is you have to keep moving constantly and whatever that means for you. So if you're early in your writing career and you're like still trying to like figure out how to publish a story, you know, the question right there for you is, well, are you writing enough? Like maybe not every single day, but writing very often. And, you know, is the writing, relatively speaking, really high on your list of priorities? You know, are you doing other things constantly? Are you writing a lot? You know, if, if you're sort of in the middle of the game, it's kind of like, all right, so you got a few stories published. What do you want to do next? You need to be thinking about, you know, what's your big project? It's going to be a chapbook, you know, a book of poetry, an essay collection, a novel. And I think that the thing is, you know, have a lot of pans on the, on the fire that are writing related. You know, don't be afraid to engage in projects that seem a little unusual sometimes, but just make sure that you're always doing something and having goals for yourself. It's just you need to be thinking about, you know, what do you want to see in the world? And I, I know that for me, once I decided that I wanted to be, a novelist, that sort of put everything else in perspective. It's the reason why I went back to school. Cause I was like, you know, Maurice, you can try and teach yourself, it'll take you 30 years to figure it out. Or you can go to school and take three years and get a lot of information like that. And so that drive to be somebody who has published a novel and now I want to publish, you know, five or 10 more novels, keep me on a sort of path of moving forward. So have goals for yourself, be active, be busy, be dedicated. And maybe most important, this is my advice to other people is, have fun with it because the fun is really important. Some writers have a hard time, which is understandable, but if, if it's really, really hard for you, then find a way to make it feel better than it, than it felt otherwise. Cause if it, if, it feel, if it feels really bad, you won't keep doing it. If it feels good. You will continue on and have a lot of success in your uh, writing life. Well, actually I want to, I want to follow that question up. Um, and this is more so for myself, but, you know, what is the best piece of publishing advice that you can give? Um, so you talked a little bit about the writing process, but what about, you know, trying to get your work out there, um, trying to get it published? Um, and, and what is some advice that you would, you know, give me, whether with this podcast or, you know, in everything that I'm trying to to navigate? We talked a little bit about me pursuing my PhD, um, getting those applications together and just um, figuring out this life of artistry as a professional. Yeah, I think it's something that applies in in most fields, but especially in artistic or even in athletic fields. 
And it's just the idea that you should be really hungry, almost comically aggressive. It, you know, if if nothing's happening right now, then you're not doing your job. And so what I mean by that is like there was a time when I would send out like one story per year or one story every couple of months to try and get it published. And then like eight months later, I get the rejection slip. And it was like, well, you know, Maurice, that's not a very effective practice. And one of my friends in the program said, well, you know, try sending out, you know, a story to, to 10 places at a time or 20 places at a time. And just those little small changes that seem kind of crazy. People are like, why are you sending out 19, you know, 19 submissions in, you know, a two-week period? Those things that seem crazy are going to do you very well. And so it's, it's, it's a combination of things. You know, one, you want to get your skills up. You want to make sure that you're writing very well. And that's why you need other writers to kind of tell you how it looks on the page and how they take your writing. But also not being so timid and afraid to think, well, I'm not ready yet or I can't do this yet. You know, there are plenty of writers where you read an essay or a book or a story and kind of go, I'm not sure how this got published. And that's fine because writing is not meant to be perfect at all times. There, there is a fan for every writer and every piece. So, you know, you want to move quickly and, and aggressively and, and be in constant motion because one of my friends told me a long time ago, she said that often it's your, like your little side job that hits off. So like maybe you have this big book that you're doing, but some essay you, you write, it's like, it's like, it's going to pop off. You know, I, I did a piece with the New York Times, an opinion piece about three weeks ago. And it was amazing to watch that piece, you know, get shared around the world, you know, and, it's not my main thing, but it's one of those things because you're in the game, it's going to help your overall game. And even as a result of that piece, I saw my book sales go up for, you know, for a period. So that's really just a part of the game. Stay in it and be somebody who's always looking for opportunities. Make sure you know what is out there. You know, know who's publishing what. You're looking at agents. And really, I think what it really comes down to is you want to ask as many questions as possible to as many people as possible. I know what I know because I am very good at asking people you know, how'd you do that? You know, how, how'd you publish over there? You know, how'd that work? So be willing to ask questions, get answers, figure out what works for you. And if it doesn't work for you, throw it away. Definitely. You know, I've, I've received some um, advice even in this academic world the other day from a former professor at Howard who was saying the same thing just about the power of asking questions and the humility and courage it takes to ask the right questions. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, before we conclude this question and answer portion, I have to ask you as a native of New Orleans to shout out something in New Orleans that you love, whether it's a favorite eatery, bookstore, business, um, and anyone or any uh, bodies who have who are here who know you um that you would like to you know send your good love to and you know talk a little bit about the current state of new orleans just anything you'd like to share to get people familiar with your hometown oh my lord you know it's so much i love about my hometown right because it's, it's home but i do want to give a special shout out to community book center which is a, a black owned bookstore it's been around for quite a while mama jen over there has yeah. been doing her work for many many years and uh, it, it's the kind of bookstore where you're going to find things written by authors you won't find anywhere else. It really is a place of empowerment. Um, I mean, she has books from the continent. She has books from scholars who you probably have never heard of. And, you know, frankly, they know a lot that they can tell you just in person about, you know, about us, our history and what makes us powerful. And um, 
you know, I mean, beyond that, you know, this city is in a tight spot right now. But I know that because of our history, we're going to be fine. You know, New Orleans has had yellow fever pandemics. We've had Katrina. We burned down a few times. Now we got COVID-19. But the reason why this city has the largest number of multiple generation African-Americans in one spot, like we go back like, you know, three, four hundred years in this city, is because we know how to survive and we take care of each other. And so um, that love is going to show through. And I'm very proud of it. I'm proud to be from this place. Yeah, definitely. I think that there's definitely a a, a spiritual presence, a spiritual awakening that's on um, within people here that I don't find elsewhere. And I'm someone who has um, lived all over this country for a few years. And, and there's something here that I, I really can't find anywhere else in this country. I often say that it reminds me of when I go back home to Guyana and, and being from somewhere else, just the kind of unity, um, the way that people function, right? The, the hospitality that, that we find here. Um, but I also also say that, that this is one of the only spaces um, that I've been in where I think people tend to cherish the artists as much as they cherish the art, which is so hard to find, especially when we start to navigate through this industry. That's probably why I'm never leaving this place because that love is real. And um, and, and, and for the record, I've never met a Guyanese person or a Guyana descended person I didn't like. So that, that, that explains a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you so much for answering some of my questions. I hope that was helpful to anyone listening. I know that you have um, some stuff of your own that you would like to read. I'm not sure if you want to read from We Cast a Shadow or any um, excerpts or any essays that you've been working on, but I would love to have you on here and share some of your work with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to read a short passage from We Cast a Shadow. That is uh, my novel that came out in 2019 and the paperback came out in January of this year. It's my first book. It's my baby. I'm very proud of it. And um, I'm going to read a passage. It's the uh, a passage that I've gotten more requests to read than any other part of the novel. It's short, about two pages. And um, for background, you know, this is a book about a Black man in the future, about 40 years in the future, who is trying to raise his son and protect his son from white supremacy that has gotten more intense over time. And um, one of the things he's seeing is that because of anti-blackness, his son was very light-skinned, can basically pass for white. And so this dad has this sort of ridiculous plan to make his son even whiter to protect him. And so in this part of the book, he's looking at you as the reader, particularly a black reader and saying, look, I know that you don't like what I'm saying. It doesn't sound right. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. So here it is. I am a unicorn. I can read and write. I have all my teeth. I've read Plato, Wolf, Nikki Giovanni, and Friend. I've never been to jail. I voted in every election since I was 18. I finished high school. I finished college. I finished law school. I pay taxes. I don't have diabetes, high blood pressure, or the itis. If you randomly abduct 100 black men from the streets of the city, 
and deposit us into a gas chamber. I'll be the only one who fits this profile. I'll be the only one who survives. Is it because I'm better than the other 99? No. It's because I'm lucky, and I know it. Somehow, the grinding effects of a world built to hurt me have not yet eliminated every opportunity for happiness, as is the case for so many of my brethren. The world is a centrifuge that patiently waits to separate my son, Nigel, from his basic human dignity. I don't have to tell you that this is an unjust planet. A dark-skinned child can expect a life of diminished light. This is true anywhere in the world and throughout most of history. But let's stick to the home of the free. Place young Jamal on an all-white basketball team and guess who will get ejected from the game more often for normal rambunctious behavior? Give a hiring manager a stack of applications and let him choose between an equally qualified Jamal, Jane, or Jonathan. See our Jamal waiting at the unemployment office again. Now, I admit that none of these examples are particularly shocking, and I fear that I risk insulting your intelligence, my dear reader. But ride along with me a while longer. See Jamal evicted from his apartment. See Jamal arrested for vagrancy. See Jamal mysteriously die in a transport van on the way to the city jail. A brief interlude of cursing the heavens. Resurrect Jamal with lightning, smoke, sparks, the smell of burning cocoa butter. Put a toy gun in Jamal's hand in an open carry state. Wait for Jane or Jonathan to call the police due to a suspicious looking black guy. See the cavalry show up and scalp Jamal. No questions asked. Jane is heartbroken for the tragic misapprehension of the situation. She says over a pumpkin spice latte as Jonathan bites the tip off a double chocolate biscotti. I have a natural aversion to numbers and statistics as they can be manipulated by any reactionary with an agenda. But that doesn't change the objective fact that prospects for African-Americans have devolved even since my grandparents' time. Black women make 30 cents for every dollar a white man does. And 90% of black moms are single mothers now. Unemployment among black males is the norm, not the exception. And nine out of 10 brothers have done time. And virtually none of us black guys and dolls can vote since now felons and the kids of felons need a voucher for an upstanding citizen to earn a voting pass. My white friend Jojo was my pass. None of that even takes into account the fact that every black person is a de facto enemy of the state. They used to call bringing in every able-bodied black male to jail for questioning racial profiling, but now it's called great police work. Did I mention that blacks in most major cities live in fenced-in ghettos, just like where I grew up in the Tico? 
There may be beauty in my blackness and dignity in the struggle of my people, but I won't allow my son to live a life of diminished possibility. I see a constellation of opportunity that those of my ilk rarely travel to. I see my son, Nigel, at the center of those stars. Thanks for that reading, Maurice. I'm so humbled to have sat with you today. Thank you for answering some of my questions. I hope that if there's any writers tuned in and listening, that that may have helped you out in your process. And if you're not familiar with Maurice's work, please check him out. Make sure you follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Maurice Ruffin. Also, shout out to Community Book Center, Miss Vera over there that has been holding me down throughout my whole process. I'm so thankful for my community down here in New Orleans. And I'm happy to share with you two more writers. So please do not leave us yet. I'm coming to you with some more writers who are sharing their original content. My name is Christiana McLean. Most people just call me Chris. Um... I graduated from Spelman College. I'm currently getting my MFA. Um, and the reason, the way that I met Carmen is through a Twitter post um, where I was asking for people to shout out other Black women who are in MFA programs um, just because I was looking for a friend and it went viral. And I created this little organization called the Black Women's Latitude. And we currently have 438 members. We will be putting out a zine. Um, just kind of like making a statement about Black writers who are in the world, contemporary writers, what it means to exist, and more so about connecting and networking. So if you're interested in that, you can find that on any of my Twitter handles. And it's Twitter and Instagram are both Chris, C-H-R-I-S, two underscores, T-I-A-N-A. T -I -A -N -A. Um, and we also have our own website. It's called theblackwomanslatitude.com. Spell it to the best of your abilities. Um, so yeah. So today what I'm going to be reading is called Loose Women. It's an, it's an excerpt from an actual longer fiction piece that just won a fiction prize for So To Speak Journal. It's a feminist journal. Um, it's all about just women's movement and what it means to be a woman in the world and just kind of unpacking feminism um so yeah so this actually is is told in four different parts but i'm going to read part one and part three so i'm a bit long-winded so just bear with me <clears throat> so loose women part one cora in her red top and flare denim had recently taken a liking to the lady with the high voice and the flowers in her hair Although she couldn't have authentic baby's breath, she'd gather tiny sticks, tiny sticks from outside, douse them with alcohol, paint them garden green, and meticulously attach bits of cotton from her pillows with thread and needle. She'd place them in her afro, which had to be patted and watered and patted again until perfectly round. So sporadically, it looked as if a white dandelion had walked up to her head and sneezed on her hair. She was walking in her black platform shoes, each click-clack leaving an auditory trail down Telegraph Avenue. This was the time before iPods or even CD players and four years before the first Walkman cassette player would be released to the public. So she drummed to her own beat, the beat of the lady with the high voice. 
Whistles and hay babies and honey and sexy things spill from the mouths of men as she shuffled in her mind between every time he comes around because this was the year before Loving You would make it to the top of the charts, even though Cora owned the new album, Loving You was only her fifth favorite track. Cora was the kind of woman that walked like she had a string of musical notes dancing around her hips and the men followed her body like it was sheets of music and their fingers were just the right instruments to tease and ease all the right notes out of her. Cora never responded to the pleas from whining men, which, which sounded more like they were singing the blues, a genre she never liked as she passed them on the street. Lord have mercy, one man shouted, think we got some fresh meat. That's Lucy's daughter, the other one added, feeling out just right. Might have to get her mama like I got her last week. Both men laugh. Give her a couple years, she gonna be just like her. She be working these streets for real, one of them said. Hey girl, make sure I'm your first customer. I ain't one of them cheap Negroes either. I always tip. Cora ignored them. She focused on making it to Foxy's and getting to her older sister Elaine before the band played, the lady with the high voice and the flowers in her hair. Elaine said she would sing a few songs this one time and only because it was Cora's birthday. Now, if you let Cora tell it, Elaine is the only other person in the world to hit those whistle tones. Back when she was five and Elaine was 10, Cora would sit on the other side of the fridge, listening between the swash of dis dishwater and plates hitting against the racks as her older sister let songs escape from her mouth. Cora would lean her head back, trying to catch the words as they floated to her ears. Cora is a quiet woman, so she never told her sister about these quiet moments. That's why her walk down Telegraph was that much more extraordinary. She wasn't quite sure she could force out a shout, not even a scream if someone attacked her. She walked towards Foxy's, knowing that the men were following her like dogs with a scent. Only she didn't run or hide or break her stride. She was prepared. She was feeling the coolness of the metal and the coolness of the breeze and the coolness in her walk when she entered Foxy's. She had heard Mr. Slick, though the name his mama gave him is Jerome, calling after her. Hey, baby, he shouted, you in a red top. I know you hear me calling you. She ignored him. She finally saw Elaine as she stood next to the homemade stage of wooden planks and black tablecloths. Only after seeing Cora's face did Elaine mount the stage. Everybody in Foxy's was sweet loving and rocking with each other to music so loud people felt the bass in their chest. They was gripping hips like they had handles and kissing lips like they were putting out fires. It was hot and sticky and oh so grimy. Cora was pushing all her weight to her toes and stretching out her neck as Elaine turned around motioning for her to come closer. Cora was dishing out excuse me's and I'm so sorry's and let me by's and I just wanna cut right in front of you, trying to make it through the swarm of bodies to her big sister. And Mr. Jerome, but you can call me Slick, was falling right behind her. And Cora, remembering all the men hollering after her through the street, got this heat in her chest from the too loud music, the too sweaty body, and the slight, slightly frazzled sight of Elaine standing next to the set, nearly ready to perform without her. So it disturbed her that just as she was finally next to her sister, she felt a hand palm her ass. It wasn't the kind of brush that came from accidental bumping or overzealous grinding that momentarily causes you to lose your balance. This wasn't even the kind of inappropriate slash thrilling touch that comes from past lovers who pass you in the street 
and they pull you in real close. You think about the last time you cursed them out and somehow landed between sheets and legs all wrapped up and confused. This was the kind of grab that was unanticipated, unwarranted, and unwanted. I am saying that Mr. Slick slash Jerome invaded Cora's space with an ass grab, and with that, a reminder that she was a body to be grabbed, not a string of musical notes, not a woman with flowers in her hair, not even a lover of whistle tones. On any other day, Cora might have ignored this man and remembered that getting home safe was more important than getting home with her integrity. She might have turned around and given him the look, the classic side eye of a black woman that can make a person freeze in their steps. She might have remembered how little she talked and how soft her voice was and shrunk herself down. She might have even thought about the walks home with her mother, how her mother made her walk on the inside of the street while she kept her keys between the left knuckles of her hand and a switchblade in the right. On this day, though, Cora only thought about this night being her birthday and the weight of the blade in her pocket. I should mention here that it long bothered Cora that men could intrude upon any woman and interrupt her day. Although this was some years before for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough, Cora had already been called a feminist, uppity hoe, black bitch, man basher, soon to be old maid. Having just read Angela Davis in an autobiography and the black woman an anthology, Cora was beginning to feel the rage that comes with knowing her life could be better even though the world feels like it's getting worse. By the time Mr. Jerome slash Slick gripped her ass with both hands and made kissing noises to her face, Cora had decided to put down her feminism and pick up something heavy like rage slash revenge slash the will to end a man who had just insulted her, not once, but twice. She forgot about being unspeaking, wanting instead to let her hands do the talking. No one stepped in or tried to pull them apart. Most people were either high, drunk, or the combination of both, and thought of this pair of moving people with grunts and jerks was nothing more than a moment that could ruin their night. They decided it wasn't their business what other people did, no matter how vicious the two fought. Part three, Elaine was not the type to start trouble. In truth, she was a silent woman. I'm being intentional about the word silent because you should not misinterpret this as quiet. Elaine was silent, as in she was the oldest of the Booker women. And while all the other girls got to contemplate which style looked best for their hair, Elaine was counting, mother, counting money with their mother and trying to make 15 cents stretch. While the other girls learned to sew and crochet and press fabrics softly against their cheeks, Elaine was learning about the roughness of silvery Brill pads and burnt food on blackened pans and hands that cramped from mopping the kitchen floor. She was the first awake to make coffee and heat the house and fry eggs and set tables and stuff book bags with brown sacks. Between all the cooking, cleaning, and cursing, Elaine learned to choose chores over conversation, figuring that most people counted on her for what she could do for them, not for what she held in her head. She found that songs put it better than anything she could ever possibly say anyway. What she couldn't think of, she sang. So even in the heat of dishwater and floating food, songs climbed up her throat. Sometimes she hummed, say a little prayer. She'd always get carried away with herself once she switched to midnight train to Georgia. And if Etta James ever even crossed her mind, the song seemed to burst through her chest. She was a silent woman relying on music to be her voice. 
for the past four years, Elaine thought about how a mic fit in her hand like Poseidon in his trident. She was thinking about how the regulars at Foxy's rushed out of work, climbed into their Cadillacs, peeled off uniforms, put babies to bed, pulled out hairspray, clasped gold chains around their necks, unbuttoned silk shirts, and rushed out just to listen to her belt out these songs. So it was especially alarming that night to look into the crowd and not see her littlest sister. I have called Elaine a silent woman, not, a, not an obtuse woman. She been heard the pitter-patter of bare feet and small breaths as Cora leaned against the cold fridge just to hear her sing. She could feel her sister trying to catch the melodies as they cascaded from her mouth like falling water on skin. And although she would never admit it, Elaine was waiting for her sister. She had only turned her back for a little second to conceal the glee and relief of seeing a face that resembled hers in the crowd when Mr. Slick slash Jerome had begun harassing her sister. She was fumbling with the mic and spitting out her gum and giving herself a pep talk while her sister felt a palm to her ass. It wasn't until Elaine faced the stage and felt the heat of the lights and saw two bodies rocking unstably, one slim and familiar, that she recognized Cora was in trouble. And she conjured up the cord of the microphone and rushed towards Mr. Slick slash Jerome, ready to draw blood. This is actually an emulation piece based off of Nafisa Thompson Spire's um, title story for her book, Heads of the Colored People. And it has a very intrusive narrative and it's told in four different parts. And I chose to emulate that just because I like to focus, I like to play with um, structure for one. And two, I like, I never had the opportunity to interject my own voice in a piece. Um, so all the moments where I, I kept saying I, or there were like side moments or like asides, that was actually me interjecting. And so this story has the main characters like Cora and Elaine and their mother and their sisters, but it has another character, which is the intrusive narrative, narrated, which is me. Um, so yeah, this is the story that, that one and I chose the other reason I chose this is because Thompson Spire's story focuses on the death of black men um, and the reason why she did it the way she did was because the details for her weren't as important because at the end of the day there was a dead black body so I chose to focus on women's issues specifically black women's issues um, as relates to street harassment so that's what this is all about my name is Christopher Luis Ramayeta I am a Cuban-American writer, uh, born and raised out of Miami, Florida. I just got an MFA in fiction from the University of New Orleans. You can find my work on Facebook at Christopher Luis Romaguera, or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter under the handle C Romaguera, right? I also have a monthly column at Plowshares that deals with Latino and POC literature and social issues. And uh, you can find more of my work at the New Orleans Review, the Daily Beast, uh, Curb National, and some of the New Orleans Pelicans coverage on ESPN's True Hoop affiliate. I'm going to read a flash piece here called Ashes of a Bridge. Why are you diving for balls in a game of catch? The pendejo of a gringo said like you sliding home in the 11th of the World Series. I rubbed the sand off my chest. It felt like earth ash, stuck and dry and white. 
I looked out to the water. Stone blocks sprinkled up and down, an incomplete bridge, construction having started and stopped, started and stopped for years. When I first saw bits of America of Miami, for I thought both those things started in the same place, I saw incomplete bridges in the sea and thought they were outstretched hands trying to help me. Now all I saw was the border of water that can't be bridged, a burned bridge. I can catch anything you throw my way, I said, beads of sweat braiding down my forehead, my low fade abrasive to the touch, and shit, half the things you don't even throw my way. Sirens wailed behind me. The pendejo joked about people who walked or ran away. He scar-faced the word cockroaches. He tried not to lose the phonetic battle against the word la migra. Breeze carried each breath from the dispersing crowd, recording their whispered fears. I knew what happened. A raft was spotted. The pendejo launched the baseball. I chased it. The ball sailed up in the air, then like a rainbow arced down to a treasure that I couldn't reach. I ran. I dove. The ball bounced off a rock and rolled into some marshes. The keys turned from tourist sound box to what gringos called exotic. At the water, I saw her, Cuba, just floating there. As each step cut up my feet with thorns from down bushes and shrubs, I can't find the ball. I looked up and saw her again. I used my hand to block the image like an ex-lover that can reel you back in between a couple of blinks. I opened my fingers and peeked. On one of the blocks of the incomplete bridge, I saw a mother and child. When they saw me, they smiled, they waved. They thought they were home. But I've read on this thing before. In a policy as sophisticated as wet foot, dry foot, the bridge, no matter how dry, doesn't count as land. If found, they'd be sent back like two runny eggs. I knew my face conveyed fear. I saw the mother's face morph. I can't scare them, but I need them to come here. If they don't, they'll be sent back to the mirage of a home. If I yelled, they wouldn't be able to outswim the boat. If I yelled, they'd be sent back like my father was each and every time. Caught and released, only to be sent to Cuban jails. Caught and released, except for the last time. Except for the time that made me and my mother come alone and never look back riding in the bed of a Ford pickup truck that floated through the Florida Straits. I waved them over, but my face that turned like the tides had sown mistrust. The mother didn't believe me. How could she? So many of the Coast Guard looked like me, like us, them getting us to rat on our own people, like in Cuba. I don't know how much of an us I feel like right now. I don't have my ID. I wonder if I jump in, would I get caught up in the net too? Did I look American enough that the Coast Guard would leave me be? Did I look American enough for the mother and child not to trust me? I thought of that pickup truck, of the hot summer days in the water, praying to the mirage of the American dream to appear, but nothing came, nothing came. My mother's thinly veiled fear getting blown aside with every breeze of wind, with every turn of the tides. Back at the incomplete bridge, I saw the mother and child. I felt the crash of water breaking for me, the salt scabbing up my feet. I swam against the current. In the pickup truck, I remembered the water never ending, 
five days at sea, just waiting for land, praying for no boats to come, no sharks to come. We had pushed the Ford into the water, let the engine run like a motorboat until it flooded out. Once it did, we all stood in the bed of a Noah's Ark of a pickup truck and waited. I swam to the mother and child. The sirens continued to wail and echo the sea. The reds and blues colored the marshes behind me, and I prayed the light in my eyes was from the sun reflecting off the ocean. I had to get them. I had to get them to a home. On the pickup, when we were finally got to land, the water like hot soup burned as we jumped off, but it didn't matter. My mother yelled at me to run to the land, for even if we didn't see a boat or the cops, they could pop out of anywhere and catch us. My feet found sand. My feet caught shells and got cut up, bleeding all over the ocean floor, red roses of blood floating up to the surface, mixing with ashes of bridges, and I ran and splashed through the water, getting on sand, on land, on home, with no one to watch. The mother and child, focus. I get to the concrete block. I reached for the edge, hoping one of them pulled me up so I could bring them down. I felt myself get pulled. Halfway home, I thought. I looked and saw the cold eyes of a Coast Guard. What are you doing, he said. I panted, pointed in one direction, then the other. Go back home, he said. But the ashes of bridges left me nowhere to go. So that last piece was titled Ashes of a Bridge. And I wrote it about uh, the how people can see from Key West, Cuba, out in the distance, almost like it's a mirage, at least on a clear day, and how so many people go to check that out, but they're never, they never actually go back home, whether because they can't uh, legally or personally or spiritually or what have you. Um, I kind of want to talk about how people also look from Cuba to the U.S. and they want to reconnect with lovers, lost one, fam, but aren't able to um, or have a, have a hell of a time trying to do so and reaching over and how so much has been lost in between those two places. Um, this next piece will be dealing somewhat similar uh, subject uh, or a similar route uh, called Breaking the Water. She's going to die unless you wake up. You are on a raft. You and your mother, you and your padrino, you and other dreamers like you. You sleep, hoping to wake up to another dream. You had fallen asleep in the night, constellations poking little white holes of dead light into the sky. You would hope the day pulled the dark curtain of the night sky to reveal your new home, but the day comes with no home. So you cook in the sun. The crash of breaking water shakes the raft, shakes you, but you still dream of hearing your mother's voice curve around the walls of a house of clinking glasses of rum as salutes fill the air, of connecting your locket-split family, of repairing your heartbroken mother's heart, of making your own personal La Havana. You dream of a home. You wake up to the echo of the water breaking. You feel the tension, others already awake. You unkaleidoscope the image, seven silhouettes where there used to be eight, Seven startled dreamers woke up to the nightmare. Se fue. But unlike the rest, you do not stick in the sun. Before you could even hear the echo of your fallen mother's call, you break the water too. You swim down to her. You keep pushing yourself to her as she sinks below you, beneath you. So you keep pushing. 
as if the world sinks her before you on purpose to ruin you. And you keep pushing as if the Orisas placed a gentle hand on your back and moved you forward faster to be able to catch her. And the waters get darker as if spirits cast all their spells and shadows over you. Your head gets heavy, pressure increasing, tightening the vice. Your heart keeps pumping. Your mother raised you to be all heart. It pumps because it is all that it knows how to do, as if you couldn't live in a world where you'd let this happen. You feel yourself moving slower as the salt piles on you. Each grain ticks off time. Each ounce drowns and dehydrates you. You keep pushing as your bubbles float higher and higher to the world of dreamers that you can no longer see, bubbles that burst against the plane farther and farther away. You keep pushing, trying to get to the beautiful soul that sinks to scoop her up and save her, like as a child when you'd break the water to show your roading mother the beautiful shell you've uncovered from beneath the sea. And you reach her. You follow the air bubbles up, each one carrying an almost lost memory, an almost lost dream. Little by little, the balsetto silhouettes return to your eyes. You then break the water again. Jose, you saved her. I cry in the middle of the night, sitting in an empty lifeguard station at the beach, thinking of you dancing on the mound like a shaman. I cry thinking that none of us saved you when it was your turn to fall, years later, after you had lived your dream. How none of us could break the water for you, none of us being able to find the beauty against the erosion like you did. I cry looking at all the lights from buoys that shine on the water, where you crashed on the rocks, a constellation in the sea, letting us know where our hero fell. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Special thank you to all of our readers. I could not do this without you. Again, check us out on Instagram at what you read in this series. Tag us, tell us what you're reading and make sure that you tune in next time. If you know someone who would love to be a part of this podcast or maybe you have something you want to share, DM us on Instagram and let us know. We're here, we're open, we're forming a community. Check us out.